Uh, welcome, everybody, and thank you for such a nice welcome, Saran. I've never had anybody do a kind of little biography on me before. Uh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I have a Yorkshire accent, and I hope that I will be understood by everybody in the room. I'm from the north of England, um, so I make some strange vowel sounds some, uh, sometimes. But I'm talking about knowledge creation today. Um, the fact that we in the room are all creating knowledge, our students are creating knowledge, uh, we as students and learners are creating knowledge. And for me, it's really important that we do that through dialogue. So conferences are my favourite times because we can have all sorts of new ideas, generate new knowledge uh, through our conversations with each other. And I hope we'll do some of that today. Um, so I'm going to talk about a dialogic approach, uh, the power of networks and of networking, um, and mentors and mentoring, as Saran's mentioned. But I'm going to start with uh, a little bit of my own research journey, just to show you that it's not always a smooth journey as a researcher. Sometimes we kind of appear to be rather uncoordinated, as my dad has sometimes described me. Um, so I started my um, higher education experience with a BSc, so a science um, background as a geographer. Um, then I switched to the other side um, with a PGCE. In the UK, that stands for a Postgraduate Certificate of Education. So I've moved from geography on the left to education on the right-hand side. Um, I did some teaching. I taught in um, Zimbabwe for a couple of years as a VSO volunteer. And then when I came back, I decided to shift back into science and became a soil scientist. So I got my MSc over on the other side. Then I flipped back again and became a lecturer. I was training primary school teachers in a school of education, but I was training them to be geographers. So I was kind of mixing together the two sides of this diagram. So I've got geography on the left and a very positivist approach to research, and then a much more qualitative approach to research on the right-hand side, um, where I did my PhD part-time, and I'm sure some of you will be in that, the same boat um, whilst I was lecturing. I then shifted back again and became a researcher at Oxford University um, in soils in an archaeology unit. So I was a postdoctoral researcher. And then I became a lecturer where I still am at Oxford Brookes uh, University in 2002. But as Saran mentioned, I got my National Teaching Fellowship, and that was for work where I was researching my own practice. I was researching the launch of these journals and the impact they were having on my students. So I had a learner focus, but again, it was within my discipline. So the, um, the journal that Saran mentioned, Geoverse, is a geography um, discipline journal for undergraduate researchers. And I've very recently and very excitedly become a professor this year. So, I was, yeah, that's... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but that, that was um, within education. So although I'm a geographer, so I still teach geography. In fact, I should be teaching geography this afternoon. But, uh, well, somebody else is doing that for me. Um, I've become a professor in education. So my research has shifted between these two different sides. It shifted um, from qualitative research on the right-hand side back to scientific research. So my epistemology and ontology is rather mixed up. Um, some would say I'm a bit of a mixed-up kind of person, but, you know, sometimes my journeys felt a bit like that, plate spinning and trying to keep the two things happening at the same time. 
because I firmly believe that if we're going to understand um, students' learning, we need to have a discipline focus for some of that, as well as a higher education focus and an educational um, aim within that. But I was at a conference um, at Leiden University in the Netherlands the other day, and I drew in the air this kind of zigzagging between the two sides of my career, and somebody described it like this instead. And I thought, ooh, that's nice. That makes me feel kind of like I've actually brought things together, rather than, I was going to show you a headless chicken, but it wasn't a very nice picture. Uh, but that's how it's felt sometimes. But this is a really nice idea that actually, you could see this as a synthesis. And it made me realize the power of metaphors. I use a lot of metaphors when I'm speaking and when I'm teaching, and metaphors will keep cropping up today. So, the first activity, Mark has told me this must be interactive, so it will be. Um, I'd like you to look back on your journey that's brought you here today. I don't mean the car or the train or the plane. I mean your journey as a researcher. How have you got to be where you are today? And what is a metaphor for that journey for you? I once did this activity with a group of PhD students and I described my metaphor for my own PhD as being like an onion, which is why the diagram, and there's, there's more onions coming up later in the presentation. Um, but, and I tried to describe this in such great detail that they actually described me from then on as onion woman because they felt that I actually was studying onions. I described how I was peeling back the layers and it made me cry the, the more I got into the research, that kind of thing. So just for a second, um, I'd like you to consider your metaphor for your research up to this point. So that's the looking back bit. I'll just give you one minute to share with somebody next to you what you think your metaphor is for your research to this point. I'm going to move on, but hopefully you'll be able to keep discussing your metaphors through the day and thinking, reflecting on them, because some, some are really positive, some are negative, and it's great to have a powerful metaphor to, to guide you. Um, the next thing I'd like you to do is to get your business card out. And this is just for you as an individual person, so you don't have to share this. Flip it over. On the blank back... Where do you want to be in the future? Where is this research journey taking you in the next five years or further if you want to? I want you to write down something that is your goal, your target that you'd like to achieve and then slip it in your wallet and keep it and keep taking it out of your wallet and reminding yourself how you're going to get there. What metaphors will help you? What's your next action? So just take one second to have a write-down of where you would like to be, how your research journey might evolve. Pop it on your business card. Can I just check, is there anybody else in the room who didn't pick up their business cards? Because I'm just going to get some. Right, I'm going to pick them all up and I'll bring <laughs> You can always just use a piece of paper. A slip of paper will do. <laughs> Okay, I'm whizzing through these activities, and some of these will take time. It takes time to think of a really powerful metaphor. It takes time to think about your, uh, your kind of future. But um, I hope you'll refine that, refine what's on your card, and uh, keep it safe and protect it. Uh, so what I'm going to talk, today, um, talk about today, then, is uh, my journey. I'm going to talk about students as researchers. I'm going to look at some effective um, practices from my own work, 
Um, we'll talk about the dialogic approach to the research process, and then I'll look at some international networks and networking activity and mentors and mentoring, um, because mentors and mentoring has actually become my new research uh, topic and direction. So I'll finish with that. So kind of by means of a theoretical framework, um, I'll just kind of place my research and thinking. So undergraduate research, um, there's a guy in the States called George Koo. He's been extremely influential. He's said that uh, there are 10 high-impact practices um, for undergraduate researchers, and undergraduate research, engaging in research, is one of those practices. Um, Research, I believe, is for all students. This isn't just for selected students, for a um, privileged group of students, it's for everybody. And um, that's that principle has guided all my work. Um, but I also believe in a constructivist um, approach to knowledge creation. So students co-constructing knowledge uh, through dialogue with each other and with um, academic staff or teachers as part of a community of practice. So I, I believe this is really important, developing communities. And of course, it's SRHE and the Newer Researchers Conference is, is one of those communities. And there are sub-communities within that that you've been introduced to. And with, by the champions this morning. There are loads and loads of different communities you can engage in. Um, but the, the central goal for higher education in the 21st century, uh, Marsha Baxter-McGolder, another American uh, academic, has said, is self-authorship. So although I talk about journals a lot and about authoring, she doesn't mean that kind of authorship. She means authoring yourself, authoring your values, knowing where your values come from, where your knowledge comes from, and really being aware of that knowledge construction process. And so that's something I think that, for me in my uh, role as an academic, is important to convey to students. Um, and that's something that has been guiding me. So all of these um, things for my theoretical um, framework. If we look at the literature on students as researchers, um, well, sorry, if we look at the literature on how we would describe students in higher education, it's not always as researchers. So these are some um, terms that people have used. And this consumer model um, is quite pervasive at the moment with students paying for their higher education. But students have also been described as clients. Uh, the vice-chancellor at my uh, university has described students as clients. We need to you know, ask them what they want and give them what they want. They're our clients. Um, but I'm very much in the, the kind of the third and fourth on this list, students as producers of knowledge and co-producers of knowledge. Uh, there's a whole body of literature also on students as partners in learning and even as students as change agents. This is where students engage in thinking about how we might change pedagogies in universities, the way universities are run, um, and so on. But I'm interested in students producing and co-producing um, knowledge. And this is a very useful um, diagram to indicate kind of the field and how that might end up in the higher education curriculum. So at the bottom, we have students being treated as an audience for research, and at the top, they're a participant. On the left-hand side, the focus of the curriculum is on the content, the research content, and on the right, it's all about the process. So it gives us four different types of curriculum 
um, that students might experience. And they may experience them at different times as they go through university. So if we start with the bottom left, a research-led curriculum, this is where academic staff might bring their own research into the curriculum and share it with students, or bringing research from the literature. Above that, a research-tutored curriculum has students critiquing published research. So they're engaging, but they're not creating new knowledge. Uh, the bottom right, a research-oriented curriculum, has um, students understanding the research process, learning the research methods of their discipline. Um, and in the top right, students are actually framing inquiry. So this is a research-based curriculum. They're building new knowledge. I think what's interesting, though, is to think about how students feel about these different quadrants, what it feels like to be a student What's, what's their experience? So I've superimposed on this framework from Mick Healy, the work of um, Philippa Levy. So the research-led curriculum, students talk about, well, this feels like gathering information. A, a research-tutored curriculum is about exploring other people's ideas. A research-oriented curriculum is evidence in developing their own ideas as students. But this is the one I like the most because of the F word, free. Students feel free when they're engaging in research-based learning, when they are guiding the inquiries. Um, and the theme of the, the conference over the next three days is freedom and control. So we want to give students control over the inquiries and to make them feel free. So to me, a research-based curriculum is the answer. And make no mistake, students are very aware when they're doing real research, something that is genuinely knowledge-creating for them, rather than something where the academics that are teaching and assessing them already know the answers. It doesn't feel free, it doesn't feel authentic and real. So to use a metaphor um, of what it might feel like to be on a research journey as a student, um, those of you that have used, I think in America you call this GPS, um, or a satellite navigation satnav, we'd call it in the UK. Um, this is where students are given a research problem, they're told what to do, turn left, turn right, do not perform an illegal U-turn, all this kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of the bottom of this ladder for students when they're navigating a new landscape, the research landscape. And you might start to feel that you might be somewhere on this ladder. Hopefully, you'll be right at the top. So this is a ladder pre predominantly for undergraduate um, students. But when you encounter a new research area, you've got to start somewhere. So it might seem familiar. A second step is like giving a student a GPS. We call this a GPS. I don't know what Americans would call it. If they're calling the other thing a GPS, it's quite confusing. But this is a handheld device that uses the satellites to tell you where you are. It gives you a tiny picture of the landscape. So for a new research landscape, it gives you a sense of where you are and it can help to guide you through. So students are in, informed and they're consulted about the research process. The third step would be like giving a student a map and compass. So there's a limited, there's an edge to the map. So a student might want to go beyond the edge of the map. There's a compass, that's the set of research skills that they've got to navigate this new landscape. So it might still be staff-initiated research, but the decisions are being shared with students. And then the next level, which is student-initiated, is just the compass. 
So you've got your tools, but you're in a whole new landscape. You've got to create the map yourself. You've got to map out the field. You, and you are going to create new knowledge as part of that. So I think that's a useful kind of metaphor for thinking about that. I promised you onions. They're here. Um, so... This is some student research. Um, it's a dissertation student, undergraduate level, and her dad owned a farm which supplies onions to one of our largest supermarkets in the UK. I'm not going to name the name. It's on there, though. Um, <laughs> so, we, um, so her dad supplies onions to Tesco's, and the Onions that Tesco's sell in the UK have to come from more than one country. Just her dad's farm cannot supply them. So um, her, she carbon footprinted the onions that Tesco's sell, those that come from New Zealand, from Spain, and from the UK. Okay, I'd like you to guess. Well, not guess, an informed decision as to whether you th which you think has the lowest, the medium, and the highest carbon footprint. And then I'll show you her results. So in pairs, just quickly, which do you think to get... This is the carbon footprint of every process, everything, from the seed right through to bringing the onions to the um, supermarket in the UK for sale. Okay, everything, transport, you name it. Okay. Lowest to highest, go. Give you one minute to decide. Okay. Hands up if you think that the lowest carbon footprint is from the UK, those produced in the UK. Hands up. Okay. That's probably about 10%, maybe less. Hands up if you think it's from Spain. Okay, it's about half of you. And from New Zealand. Oh. So, explain. Well, New Zealand, fabulous climate, the onions dry naturally, despite the fact that there's a significant transport cost, that transport is by boat, so relatively, in carbon terms, it's not too bad. Contrast that to Spain, where they're brought by lorry, Okay, a large carbon footprint for that. And in Spain, huge amounts of agricultural production cost because of the irrigation needed and the power needed to, to supply that. In the UK, poor climate, we spend most of our time drying our onions <laughs> so that we can store them. Okay, but this research, this is an undergraduate research dissertation, deserves surely a wider audience than it just sitting, one copy sitting on my shelf and one copy that goes back with the student. Why not share this research? So, um, obviously Tesco's are interested in carbon labelling as well, as thinking about food miles, so they had a huge interest, and our Department for Education, Food and Rural Affairs also interested in the research. Often people ask me, at the end of the keynote, I get questions and people say, what happened to the student? It's like, why not ask me about my research? Never mind. What happened to the student? So I'll tell you. She's working for a carbon footprinting company. Um, she's in Asia, and they're looking at offsetting through tree planting and that kind of thing. So she has continued. Um, she did say to me when she'd just finished her dissertation, she'd got a good result. Um, I think I'm going to diversify. And then she said, into carrots. And I just thought, no. <laughs> but that was her dad. Her dad was going to start growing carrots. 
Um, yeah, so there is a gap, I think, in the research experience of our students um, compared to, to us as academics and us as um, postgraduate researchers, which is that those students don't get an opportunity very often to share their findings. They don't get feedback from a wide audience. And so that's something that um, I've seen it as my mission to try and uh, address that. And the, um, Ernest Boyer has said that dissemination of results is an essential and integral part of the research process. And that's why we're all here today, to disseminate our results, to talk about our results and to support each other. So um, I have a, a model, a, another metaphor for you. This one might not be that accurate in the modern day where you're all taking photos using digital means, but in an old-fashioned camera, there's an aperture inside that controls the amount of light that gets onto the film inside. And so I use this metaphor of an aperture to get across the idea that student research could be given a huge exposure beyond the curriculum on the right-hand side or a small um, exposure on the left-hand side just within the curriculum. There's lots of different ways that students can um, share their research. So from blogs and wikis that are public through to having poster conferences internally within a module um, within class and that kind of thing. So there's a huge range of different things. Um, so I had a... Uh, a a walk in the woods with my husband one day and through dialogue came up with the idea to try and address this issue, um, to try and increase the audience for my students' research. And that's when I started Geoverse. And it started like this, very small, with uh, just four universities involved. Um, it's now grown and we've got international um, applicants um, for students to write for the journal. But it's an e-journal. Um, it's for undergraduate students, um, and I've published um, about that in my own discipline um, journal. So the way that it works is that um, postgraduate students act as reviewers. So it's a nice model for um, postgrads to become reviewers on a journal because for them, reading critically um, journal articles is the best way to improve their own writing and I think there's a lesson in there for all of us. Being a reviewer on a journal is a great way to improve your own um, writing. But I, um, this diagram just shows what students get from the experience. So on the left hand side, the, the two columns on the left are things that students get just by writing in a journal article format rather than writing an essay or an exam. Um, in their undergraduate course. So they get a sense of ownership of the research. They get more understanding of what they've been doing. They get a sense of creativity and achievement that they've completed a journal article. Um, they apply constructive criticism um, from the reviewers and they gain skills in critical evaluation. But what's added if students go on to publish their work is that they also get material for their CV, so there's a kind of legacy. Um, they get academic recognition and they describe themselves as researchers. They're like, I'm a researcher now. I'm not a student anymore. So they go into this liminal state, this almost, oops, sorry, almost like a threshold where they're a mini-professional, not just a student, and they describe that. Uh, they want further dialogue about their research and they've got a motivation to publish more. Um, 
So then I started to research my practice. So I started to research, well, what is it that students are getting from this? Um, this iterative process, trusting the written feedback of others, and this desire for feed forward. And I, um, I published that. But what's missing for students? So I did this in my spare time, started this journal and started researching around it because I was also researching my own discipline. But this kind of really captured my interest. And students said that there's something wrong though, there's something missing. And I thought, here we go. I've put a lot of time and effort into this. Um, what am I going to have to do next? It's this desire for dialogue. When you write for a journal, you don't end up having a nice conversation with the person that's reviewed your article and you can get clarification. You just get a written set of changes, really, and advice. And there's no dialogue. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to do something more dialogic for students. Um, so this is a student um, who has published with my journal, who gave me this feedback. So she said it gave me a really authentic experience of peer review, but there wasn't this dialogue that I was looking for. So I started off having student research conferences. So I started in 2007 just with departmental level conferences, built up to national level conferences with the British Conference on Undergraduate Research, um, and then started thinking about, well, I must, I must evaluate this. What are students getting from this experience? Um, especially to try and contrast it to what they're getting from a journal, because they're two quite different experiences. So uh, this is just to show you some stats from my, uh, my quantitative days, just to show you the sample. Um, so we got about 14% um, percent sample of all students who presented at conferences in three different years of the British Conference on Undergraduate Research. And the themes that came out of that were that it's really important um, to be able to convey your research ideas in a language that somebody from a completely different discipline can understand. So that in itself was a skill that students were developing that was different to writing, because with writing, you're writing for a discipline audience. Here, students were learning a new language. They were escaping what they described as their disciplinary bubble. They were living in this little geology or geography bubble, and suddenly they've got to convey their ideas to somebody from a different discipline. It was a very empowering, authentic experience. And I picked out um, a, a, a theme from Foucault, so a Foucauldian theme of reciprocal elucidation, and I presented this at uh, SRHE last year. So here's an example of um, one of the things that the students have said in feedback. Um, it's completely different to presenting within university because you can be questioned by people you're not studying with, for anyone presenting later on today, this is what it's going to feel like, um, who are likely to have expertise in other areas relevant to your research. This can result in bi-directional exchange of information in which both myself presenting and the student asking the questions can gain greater knowledge of the subject area. In other words, knowledge building. So this is building knowledge across different disciplines at undergraduate level, just through a conference. And in terms of time and effort, this was much, much easier than establishing a whole journal. Um, so I got some different outcomes um, from this compared to the journal. Students got immediate feedback. This is Alex again. She presented at that conference. 
Um, she learned from others and she had to defend her research on the spot and say why she had chosen the methods she'd chosen, etc. And that was a really great experience. She hadn't had to do that at any other time in her university, really defend why she'd done something. Um, but she said, there's always something, isn't there? It's too late to impact on my grades, though. And I thought, oh no, what am I going to do? I've established a journal, I've started this whole range of different conferences, there's still something missing from each one of them. There's positives, you know, trusting advice of others, feed forward, instant feedback, critical skills, recognition, but there's something missing and I want you to help me solve this. What is the silver bullet solution to my journal lacking a conversation and my conference having no legacy and being too late to make changes. So you have to be there at a conference. There's nothing left after it. You've gone and it's, everyone's gone. So can anyone suggest a silver bullet solution to this dilemma? What do I need to do next? Say again. Okay, so publish the proceedings. So have a legacy from the conference. Okay, that's one. Anything else? Have a conference before the journal. Yeah. So if you use them the other way around, have the conference as the, air, the arena to share ideas, even if they're not fully, fully formed and finished. And then the journal is the finalised write-up that has incorporated all that feedback and ideas. Okay. So the dialogue needs to feed forward. So when you're asking each other questions after presentations, ask questions that will help people move forward. Okay, so here we go with Alex again. She decided to do another kind of research for her undergraduate. She did an independent study and she researched a museum. Um, she created a museum exhibit, so she's created a tangible outcome. It's open to the public. It's in Kansas in the US um, following a tornado disaster. But I really like this model. Um, of course, there were some problems with it. It's static as a museum exhibit, and it's not very disco discoverable unless you go to the museum. So you can see where we're going with this. Um, but um, on my um, Christmas list is the book at the top, Universities, the Citizen Scholar and the Future of Higher Education. I love this concept of the citizen scholar, that we are all... Um, our scholarship will inform a wider public. It's not just for us in privileged higher education, and maybe this is why we've got Brexit and Trump and things like that, because we're not sharing beyond our own arenas um, with people. So thinking about ways to get your message out um, to a broader audience is really important. So um, now, is this going to work if I click on this link from this one? So I had a little clip to show you. Well, you can look at it in your own time. <laughs> um, so I started a conference. It was just a clip about the conference and the different diversity of ways of um, showing student research. And it showed the power of LinkedIn. Um, it showed how people who'd gone to the conference then um, had clicked on LinkedIn and uh, connected to lots of other people. So uh, yeah, I had a university-wide conference, opened it to the public. Um, and created a student research repository online. So it addressed this idea of legacy um, for students following the conference. 
So following the conference um, that I attended last year, when, um, sorry, in 2014, I came to SREHE for, for the first time in 2014. I presented a paper on capabilities, uh, geo-capabilities and capability theory. And I met uh, somebody else who was presenting his papers on capability called Jeff, Jeff Hinchliffe. Um, he described himself later as a philosopher in need of a social scientist. Um, last year, we had lunch together during the conference, and he'd got an offer from an editor, and I'd got a load of data that I'd collected. And just last week, uh, we produced a chapter in this book. So just by talking to someone after a paper in a conference, we've got an output within a year. So that was just a really nice example to so that I do do this conference networking. I do practice what I preach. Um, so we're going to have a go at networking now. Speed networking. It's a bit like speed dating. So find somebody in the room. If you're, um, if you're with somebody that you already know really well, don't talk to them. Talk to somebody different. Um, hopefully you're mixed up enough on the tables. But can you, um, just for, I'll give you three minutes for this whole activity. So you've got one minute per person and a bit of change over time. So for 30 seconds, um, give a summary of your research to the person that you're next to or somebody you don't know. And then ask what is the big picture question your partner's researching. After 90 seconds, and I'll indicate that to you, stop and swap over. Okay? So find out what research area somebody else in the room has got and make a connection. Okay? Find out something they're doing, make a connection, and then swap over. Okay? Off you go. Hello, everybody. I'm just checking that you've switched over. Make sure you switch over so you talk to the other talk. Yeah, switch. Okay, could I encourage you to, to sit back down? So I'd just like to say a little bit about international networks. Um, there have been two networks that I've, um, well, three really, been involved in. Um, the first is a network, the International Network for Learning and Teaching in Geography and Higher Education. So we shorten it to INLT as our network. Um, but also the ISOTL network, the International Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. And these are two um, networks that have organised writing retreats or collaborative writing projects. So they've, um, I found out about them through uh, mailing lists. They've had pre-conference writing events um, and then collaborative journal article writing, and they've been sponsored by journals. So there's real opportunities to look out for in terms of collaborative writing projects that are out and about in higher education. Uh, the second one is um, at Elon University in North Carolina in the States, and they've got calls coming out about the different um, key impact practices that I mentioned at the beginning those higher impact practices. So I did one on undergraduate research um, mentoring in their Center for Engaged Learning. And again, we formed collaborative research groups from around the world and wrote together um, over three consecutive summer, summers. Um, we're writing an edited book at the moment and held a conference. 
So there's some great opportunities out there. But mentors and mentoring has become an area that I'm really interested in uh, researching at the moment. So Brad Johnson's work describes mentoring as a reciprocal, authentic relationship between people. It can be about careers or psychosocial. It's about the whole person, not just one of those aspects. Um, and it forms a safe space for you to talk to other people within um, it should be transformational for the mentee. Um, so engaging in peer mentoring is something that's um, in the literature, that different um, ladders and networks of mentors together can support people um, to pass on this kind of relational skills cash, the idea of if you've got a good relationship and you've, been the benefit, uh, you've benefited from a mentoring relationship as a mentee, you then will become a great mentor for your students and for other people uh, to follow. So I've been studying most recently the practices of award-winning um, research mentors, specifically for undergraduate research. Um, and these practices, um, we um, did a major literature review of uh, 20 years worth of um, literature on this topic to find out what the effective practices are of research mentors and published this. So this is my group of um, um, co-workers published this as 10 salient practices of undergraduate research mentors um, in a literature review. But what we've since done, uh, sorry, and this is from the literature review, so those are the 10 practices. As soon as we had this list of practices, it sort of became a staff development tool, and we started to think, well, which are the practices that we find easy to do? Which are the mentoring practices that we find really challenging? And so we started to use that um, in a kind of positivist framework to ask people which are the ones you struggle with and why. And one, five, and nine, the ones in bold, came out as things that people find particularly difficult when mentoring uh, research. The first is to pre-plan strategically, given that every researcher will be at different levels and to, to really think about how to encompass that. And people said they don't really pre-plan. They see where each student's at and tailor something specific. The fifth, uh, number five, is building a sense of community among members of the research team. People struggled with that. They were often doing one-to-one -one mentoring and not thinking about building research teams. And so that's an, a developmental area that I think um, mentors are working in at the moment. And then the ninth one, related to that a little bit, is creating opportunities for the students to mentor each other. So peers and near peers to learn mentoring skills themselves, um, to bring undergraduates into scholarly opportunities. So using uh, that, and that just shows in a, um, a graph that the responses and how those three really stood out as challenges. Uh, what we've gone on to do is to um, interview people from around the world who've won awards for research mentoring of undergraduates. Um, so we've talked to people from all over the place who've won these awards and tried to pick out what are the effective practices. Because there's a difference between what the literature says is effective and what award-winning mentors actually do. So we've been trying to draw out principles from, um, from that. And it seems to me that effective mentoring is really about this uh, 
a kind of slightly dangerous and risky balance. So they describe it as, I don't do anything for students that they could do for themselves. I'm really anti-hand-holding. I would hold their hands and make tea while they're needing an extra pair of hands or working through a tough analysis or writing papers that are hard to do. But I try as much as I can to meet them at the edge of their capacity and pull them toward that edge. So a metaphor here is a precipice or a cliff edge. And a good mentor will take a student right to the edge without letting them fall. They'll be there to catch them, but they'll probably say something when you get to the edge like, fly, not jump. With jump, you know you're going to end up coming down again. Fly. And so a good mentor is able to take a student to that point So it's a bit like the scaffolding um, concept. And I think if we're peer mentoring, so if we're mentoring each other as part of a community of newer researchers, that's what we need to do. We need to keep taking people to the limit um, of their understanding. And that's where knowledge is created, where new knowledge is created. So I'd like to kind of conclude with, there's a nice little picture of some rocks in a balance there thinking about this balance idea. I think dialogue is really, really important. We need to keep talking to each other and sharing ideas. Share your business cards and make connections at this conference. And if you're staying for, um, for further days, keep doing that as well. Uh, look for a mentor. Look for that person who can take you just to the edge of your comfort zone but not let you fall. Um, and perhaps... Becoming a mentor is one of the most uh, rewarding things. So mentor younger researchers, mentor undergraduate researchers or newer researchers and peer mentor each other. Uh, Maybe as a geographer, map out your network. Who are the key contacts that you need? Who might be mentors for you? Who are the people that you need to share your research with? The people you want to join with um, on LinkedIn. And then look for this balance between freedom and control. So it's the topic of the the, the, um, larger conference, but really think about that. You're in an opportunity where you've got the freedom to research in an area that you're interested in. And you've also got it within your realms of control to disseminate that research to as many people as possible so it can make a difference. So I'd like to invite you to do that. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.